The Horse Race is brought to you by Benchmark Strategies, Boston's leading public affairs and public relations consulting firm. To learn more, connect with Benchmark on LinkedIn at Benchmark Strategies or visit benchmark-strategies.com. This week on the podcast and the horse race, a very special joint Valentine's Day episode. For those who were able to join us in person as we grappled with what the online Massachusetts political Twitter community meant to us and means to us as usage dwindles, we hope the chocolate strawberries and rosé were a thematic balm as we troubleshot some sound issues in real time. For those listening here, that's the upside and the downside of being back in person. So bear with us, the audio quality improves over the episode, but our excellent guests were insightful, fun, and working through some much needed social media catharsis. So we hope you had a great hashtag Mappily Valentine's Day, however you pronounce it, and we'll be back to our regular programming next week. Welcome everyone to a special live episode of the Horse Race and the Podcast. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group, here with my co-host Jennifer Smith, reporter for Commonwealth Beacon. You may recognize us as hosts of either the Horse Race or the Podcast, and we're here recording live today, Monday, just before Valentine's Day, to answer what to all of us in this room is a burning question, is Mappily breaking up? We are. We probably don't have very good news for you. We also have a little bit of a bracing commentary, which is uh, we don't even always know what Mappily means. But for the context here that we're dealing with, we're kind of talking about the way that we all used to come together on Twitter. We used to basically kind of gather, think about what it meant to be online and in politics at the same time. And uh, I guess today the question is, is all right, great. This is the problem with being in three-dimensional space as opposed to, you know, just, just retweeting over and over again. Please, by the way, feel free to tweet about our technical difficulties as this goes on. Um, I beg you, please don't do that. Um, okay, well, this is kind of the question, right? How do we communicate? How do we stay up when Massachusetts and its, uh, you know, political universe are changing? They're evolving and the places that we do it change. Steve? I'm going to ruin your life now because I'm going to make you think of the golden days, the, the best the possible days. days here, which were apparently when you were on Twitter regularly. <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of amazing now that those seem like the good old days, given how much we used to complain about Twitter. You know, 2014, 2015, earlier than that, even, uh, you know, we all thought in many cases Twitter was a waste of time. We thought it was a waste of time. However, in retrospect, when you're looking back and I look out at this room, I met easily 15 people in this room on Twitter. Yeah. You know, that in a way is how the Massachusetts political network, significant parts of it were built in the first place. And the relationships were built, hiring employee relationships, you know, client relationships, political relationships, endorsements, all kinds of relationships started out on Twitter. I'm going to serve the function here of uh, the introduction to whatever horrible dating couples counseling show that we're, we're currently involved in, which is basically asking what we're going to ask all of you folks. By the way, the guests here in person, this is your spoiler alert. How did you meet Mappily? How did I meet Mappily? Well, here's our meet cute. No, <laughs> no I, I, 
um, it started on Twitter before I opened the, before we started the massing polling group, and uh, was sort of tweeting into the ether just to kind of establish a presence online. And then when the massing polling group opened, was tweeting more for a professional reason, but didn't really you know start gaining any followers actually until Marty Walsh's election. Um, and it was tweeting the live turnout results and realizing and just seeing like we're providing something that's not anywhere else. No one, there's no media outlet that's creating this and just a person with no, we're not getting paid for this, with just something interesting to say can suddenly say it and people of note will listen. You know, mass, the Massing Polling Group was not anything of note at that time, um, but it became so on social media just because that was the promise of it. The door was open. If you had things to say, you had people you wanted con to connect with and they wanted to hear and see what you were talking about, that was open to anybody. And that's just not the way it is now. Right. So, so the thing that, that kind of strikes me as interesting here is I think a lot of folks, when they think about how they started getting involved with Massachusetts Twitter, it is sometimes connected to and sometimes very, very far away from how they ended up on Twitter in the first place. Uh, I was a Boston Globe co-op working the night shift, so the murder and mayhem beat, uh, from 5 p.m. to 1.30 in the morning when nothing good happens in Massachusetts. And uh, Twitter at the time was just a place where people were tweeting police scanners, essentially. That was something that people were doing at 7 p.m bless them. And, and so I didn't actually end up understanding that there was a whole Massachusetts political world until many, many years later when I suddenly had to start covering Boston and Steve was there. <laughs> and, and, and Lauren Dzinski, my predecessor in several ways, was also there. And so this idea that there was this small, very active world that involved journalists and involved comms folks and involved legislators and they were all just spouting off constantly, no matter what election was going on, was really interesting. But it turned pretty quickly in the past few years. It used to feel, if not just necessary, but also kind of fun. Not an uncomplicated fun, but, but fun anyway. And I know we've talked about this over the years, but did you have a moment where you just said, the vibes are bad now? Definitely, and, and it, it that did used to be fun. Like I do have to acknowledge that. And it was both fun and serious with uh, you know, people who legitimately needed the microphone to talk to their constituents or a police department talking to residents of the area, telling them what's going on, um, that sort of thing. And then also just fun where you could meet people and so forth. Um, you know, but we did used to take it both as something serious and something fun. You know, there was, we'll never forget the 2014 most influential people on Twitter lists, you know, that came out and you all can lie if you want, but I know you all were reading them. <laughs> figuring out where you were on that list. Um, but yes, then it, shortly after that, it really was the 2016 campaign was, I think, the beginning of one phase of like Twitter's destruction. And I think that was sort of the first phase where just the dialogue turned horrible, awful. Like the number of replies you get to just regular old tweets that, you know, used to kind of draw some local attention or maybe interest. Suddenly it was trolls and it was just people from all around the country sort of tweeting hate at you for like, I put out a poll result on like the Democratic primary and I've got Bernie bros and Hillary people like both hating on me, you know? Um, and you know, particularly the influence of Donald Trump. So I think that was the first moment really for me. How about you? I think honestly it was just when you suddenly felt that everything was a little bit less engaged. Maybe it was the same people sort of tweeting or trying to engage, but there was just, 
less response. It felt like uh, there was a higher risk for disinformation. A lot of this happened to coincide with Elon Musk, and this is also your PSA. You can call it whatever you want. We're probably going to be calling it Twitter. Uh, we are probably not going to be calling it X in the same way that they will never get me to say anything other than three-decker. Um, these, are, these are the ground rules we're working with here. But I think that we're going to talk a lot about sort of how this has interacted with people trying to communicate politically, trying to stay engaged. And I think a thing to really think about is not just the political turn that we saw, but also that the changes to Twitter are a great example of the way that user interfaces change, the way that infrastructure also changes, and that it became different to try and reach people online. So really, it's when journalism became a little bit more awkward to do on Twitter that I kind of went, maybe that's a thing. But fortunately, we're here with some people who have also gone through yeah. the trenches yeah. with us. Yeah, can't wait to hear what they have to say. We got some friends. We do. I think before we dive into the stats and all of that, it, it, I think that does kind of highlight the second phase of Twitter's death, which is really Elon Musk. There's no other way to say it. It's when he bought Twitter and um, just made, it basically took the technology that you described that was growing and improving over the years and uh, made it worse. Like it's, it's, it's much worse now than it used to be. Um, in specific ways, you know, verification, you don't know what, who, who you're listening to anymore, which was one of the benefits before. TweetDeck is gone, which again, many people in this room I'm sure remember fondly, unless you pay for it, which a lot of people don't. And you know, the, the way it interacts with news, the algorithm for what you get sort of served up to you, it's all worse. So it just makes it not feel as much like I want to go there because I'm going to get sort of a certain set of things that I know about. It's more like, you know, we're being punished somehow for not being good enough. You know, yeah. that's how it feels like when you're, you're on this platform that we all helped to build. Like, we built the Mapley corner, the little corner of Twitter that's Mapley was something that didn't exist except for the people in this room. And we're, we're sort of being treated like, you know, intruders somehow on this platform that we're not quite good enough to use unless you pay for verification. I mean, I don't see a blue check next to your name anymore. There's a reason for that. Not one dollar. I have given hundreds of hours of my life to that site. They can pay me. <laughs> Steve is the content. Yes, thank you. That's been my dream. But we're in group therapy today, not yes, just couples are. counseling. Let's get some people up here. Yeah. <laughs> we are. We're in group therapy. Um, and we have some great guests to talk about this to, to talk about this with. That is right. Okay, we are joined delightfully by Chris Oates from Legislata, Diana Desaglio, our state auditor, Kristen Halbert of Black Lion Strategies, Alex Goldstein of Nandy West, and Katie Lannon, president of the State House Press Association and GBH News's State House reporter. Also, very importantly, BFF of the Pod. Special hat tip out there to Katie. <laughs> Uh, regrets from State Senator Julian Sear. The storm that we are all not seeing outside was supposedly coming, so he can't be here with us today. He's in our hearts. He is in our hearts. <laughs> but fortunately, we have such a good crew. Let's get started. Hi, Chris. We're delighted to have you here in person, not merely a face in a profile circle out here on Twitter or X, wherever. Uh, the website Legislative publishes some of the most interesting stats out there. Programming note, we pronounce it Mapley. There was a very scientific poll that was done on Twitter about how to pronounce Mapley, <laughs> courtesy of Steve. But we did think, what better way to start out than talking through these stats? Let's actually diagnose the problem. And for that, we are joined by CEO and founder of Legislative, Chris Oates. Great to be here. It is, again, really it is. Nice to be with actual people. In an actual room, I should also mention 
I have a two-year-old child, so that's another reason why I've not seen real people for a long time. Oh. So it's great to be here. We love being an excuse for other people to have babysitters out there in the real world. I feel like we probably want to also pull your mic out. Chris, so let's start with the big picture here. Twitter is just not what it used to be. We've talked about sort of what that feels like. Can you talk about what actually goes along with that? Yeah, so Massachusetts was one of the best states for Twitter. So about 90% of our elected officials in the state legislature had an account, and they tweeted relatively regularly. I just looked back at last year, so Valentine's Day week last year. There was an average of 60 tweets per day by 61 different legislators every day. So every single day you go online and you see from a decent chunk of our state house. Um, and obviously, State elect, statewide elected officials even more. We don't know what it is now because Elon Musk broke the API, but I think we all know it is significantly less. And one of the best um, pieces of like actual data that we do have is I looked at every tweet that had hashtag Mapley in August 2021 and in the week of March 2023 when the governor released her budget. Now you would think August is a slow month, governor releasing her budget, a lot of stuff is happening. So that would be a big month. And there was actually one-third fewer tweets when the governor released her budget and by about one-third fewer accounts than there were two years prior. So at a time when politics was happening way more, political Twitter over that year and a half, two years, had really atrophied and died. And I think this is an important thing to note. It, Elon Musk is like 70% of the story, but the decline had already started. And from what we've seen, it definitely, um, and just what I felt, 2022 was kind of a turning point. 2020, 2021, there was still that online energy from the pandemic. And then 2022, there was just a lot less um, interest in the platform and just a little bit less activity. And especially from quote unquote regular people. You know, elected officials are still there and still tweeting. Journalists are still there and still tweeting. But the audience that we would tweet it out to has declined. And so in that sense, you also see a lot less engagement, you know, fewer likes, fewer retweets on anything you know, vaguely political for Massachusetts. And what, what were, uh, either before or now, or how it's changed since then, how were elected officials using it, particularly to Massachusetts? Like what kind of things were you seeing then? What would happen to those tweets? And then how is that different now? So there was, I'd say, a few different ways that you'd use Twitter. Um, one was to interact with constituents, like find out what's going on, what do they think. Um, that probably is still happening, I'm not quite sure. I'll leave that to others. But then in terms of communication, it was a lot of back and forth as well as your general announcements. So you would have your tweet that says, you know, today I testified at the state house and this is what I believe. But then you'd also have a back and forth people saying, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I saw one where there was a state senator like directly interacting with constituents about housing policy saying like, do you have a report on that? So it was a place where they communicated in an informal way as well as just like channel for press releases. And I think it's that informal way that really has, has declined. Just uh, today, I just kind of scanned governor's accounts and some others, and just there's not that kind of back and forth. It really is, here's a press release, here's a press release, here's a press release, that kind of thing. And you know, two years ago, it might be a little bit different. Um, and I should also note that Karen Spilka, who was the most followed state legislator on there last year, is not even on the platform anymore. So it's just kind of a general decline and almost a draining of the pool. So 
I mean, if you're not someone who's already just extremely online and you've talked about sort of the organic interactions and some of the formal interactions between legislators and normal people who might just want to follow Massachusetts politics, but, but why should we care? Why is this something that you follow? Why does it matter if Twitter as a specific platform goes anywhere? It doesn't matter Twitter as a platform. I think text-based short-form messaging was a really useful thing. There's a reason why everyone that kind of has tried to be the next Twitter looks almost exactly the same. And that's because it's a really dense informational environment. So like I got my start with Twitter was in 2013, I got a job um, and I was covering US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, daily publication. I needed to keep up with a lot of different stuff very quickly. And I could have gone to like lots of different newspaper websites in the morning, or I could have just had a very, very well curated Twitter feed and scrolled through that. And so you can get a lot of stuff really quickly. It was nice in that you would get context and perspective from a lot of different people. So you know, when we think about how we usually, um, you know, pre-Twitter and also let's say pre-2005, like followed what happened in our government, it was to read the newspaper, to watch TV, to listen to radio. We know that there's a decline in local journalism already. And now one of the other venues for following what happens in politics is also going away. So it just becomes that much harder for people on a day-to-day -day basis when they're like, you know, have 20 minutes on, well, I was going to say 20 minutes on the T, maybe like 45 minutes on the T, um, to say like, oh, here's what's happening at the State House. And also that kind of real-time element. So, you know, there'd be a hearing. And rather than just reading about it the next day, you could see how it's going. You could see advocates saying, oh, they just mentioned this. Here's a link to that report that does it. And it's a much richer, I think, experience than just, you know, passively scrolling through Instagram or reading a static newspaper. So I'm not saying, obviously, newspapers are bad. Magazines and journalism are amazing. Um, but it was another way to do it. And that complementarity is we're now kind of losing it. And people do sometimes talk about, okay, Twitter, you know, with what's going on with Twitter, uh, you know, it's driving traffic to a certain extent to media outlets. And, yeah, but in a way, you pointed out a very important dynamic, which is you can't just go back to pre-Twitter because the information environment that existed back then does not exist today or exists in a much diminished form. So, um, but where are people going now? And I ask that because, you know, I have five or six different social media, short form messaging, as you call it, accounts now between Blue Sky, Post News, Mastodon, Threads, Twitter, you name it. Um, none of them are close. It seems like, just anecdotally, what do you see when you're looking out at these other platforms? Yeah, so Threads is probably the closest. We have about uh, 34, last I checked, 34 of our state legislature on Threads, that's 17%. Uh, which is, I think, better, much better than Blue Sky, better than Mastodon. But that's compared to 90% for Twitter. Yeah, compared to 90%. So it's better than uh, the other alternatives, but it's certainly not Twitter. Um, I think Threads is probably the closest, but I think really what we're seeing is a fragmentation. So people are, who used to be super posters on Twitter now have a Substack, which is good for them because now they can monetize it better. It's probably a better way of actually understanding their arguments, longer form, but it does mean that it's harder for us to like scroll through and see what they're talking about. I think uh, the users are going now to TikTok, Instagram. I think you're also now seeing a really uh, a big uh, migration from posting kind of for all eternity to short form temporary stories or messaging. The head of Instagram said they've seen over the last year fewer people post, more people uh, add to stories or messaging. Um, and I think you're also seeing maybe some migration to like private chat. So WhatsApp groups, Discord servers. And I think the problem with all of those, they're all great in their own way, you don't have that central place and you don't have as a citizen to follow, 90% of people on Twitter never really posted that much to say, oh, here's the kind of the conversation. 
and here's all the different perspectives. You know, if part of that is happening in a WhatsApp group and part in a Discord server and you have to subscribe to someone's Substack, it just makes it harder for the average person to know what's going on. When you're thinking about these other sites and what could possibly be a replacement for Twitter, uh, you talked about two things. And one of them is just that it becomes very hard to kind of track. Uh, Twitter has really messed around on the back end with the ability to not just use it, but also to monitor, to scrub large amounts of data from it. And I'd imagine that it only gets a little bit more difficult, a little bit more intricate when you suddenly have to try and do that for seven different apps. So what are you seeing across these other platforms, if anything? And then is there a niche that seems to be hollowing out here? Is there still a demand for something like Mappily? Or are we seeing kind of a natural attrition as people get exhausted with news and the platform at the same time? I think so. You're right. It is hard to track the other ones. Uh, my site, we have all the threads from our state legislators and members of Congress, but like that's some pretty janky code, and it's not really, I don't know, I don't want to say it's not official, because it's not like hacking threads, but it's, it's not easy to use. But what we do see there is, yes, most of them are tweeting basically the exact same things, that they're, they're threading what they tweet. It's almost identical. The likes are actually not that far off. So uh, four of the governor's last tweets have basically the same number of average likes on threads as on Twitter. I don't know what that means. Maybe Mapley is more for Twitter. Um, but it is harder to, to see. And I do think that there is, with less activity on Twitter, and yeah, you, you ask, you know, where does it go? I think a lot of it just goes to reading newsletters, uh, maybe going directly to a website, which is maybe a good thing. But it does mean that it's harder to have that conversation. Because I subscribe to a, you know, a number of Substacks, um, but I'm not seeing the comments on them because I'm just kind of scanning through my email. All right, well, uh, we'll see you on, I assume, Substack at some point. <laughs> and don't plug your Substack. Don't do that. This is not the place. Uh, but all right, Chris Oates, CEO and founder of Legislata, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And walking us through the diagnosis. Thank you very much. So our next guest needs no introduction for those in the room, but because this will stream later to our millions of listeners across the world, we'll tell you that it's Massachusetts State Auditor Diana DeZaglia. She's had her own journey through the Twitter sphere from private citizen on through the legislature, and now as a state elected official. Auditor Diana DeZaglio, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here today. Um, so we've asked each person so far, since this is a this may be a breakup story with Mapley, how did you and Mapley first meet? I don't really remember yeah. the answer, <laughs> but uh, I do remember. I, I believe that it was before I was running for office, and I think I just was getting into the the Twitterverse like everybody else was talking about, and uh, you know, kind of at the time, excited about the opportunity to get to get to connect socially with other people and talk to people online, and that was really cool. I am an elder millennial, so. I uh, grew up in the uh, world of AOL Instant Messenger and uh, the dial-up time when you know we were listening to the <laughs> just to get online. Right, then someone picks up the phone in the other room. Exactly, and... <laughs> exactly. Get off the phone. Um, but yeah, so grew up in the you know uh, AOL Instant Messenger uh, chat day when I was a teenager, and then I remember when social media came along. Um, was actually wrapping up uh, a college course where I did a I did a report actually one of my reports in, in one of my college classes was on uh, from face to face to Facebook and it was you know, really cutting edge at that time 
<laughs> so and now we see the world that we're living in now, and uh, times have changed quite a bit. But you know, just like most folks, uh, it was just exciting when it first came out, and another way to communicate. And uh, you know, here we are. Well, how much of that changed between your runs? Was it essential? Was it fun when you were first running for state rep? Is it less essential? Is it less fun now? So I don't really have the answer to the essential factor. I can tell you that when I first ran, it seemed to be incredibly useful. At the time, I was running against a 14-year incumbent. And uh, you know uh, he was very well connected in the community. I was a newcomer at the time. Uh, some of you who live in my district remember <laughs> running for office back then. Uh, while I was knocking on doors nonstop, and that was a tool, social media was also a huge tool then. And I do remember, uh, you know, back then, and this is, you know, 10, 11, 11 years ago, maybe now, uh, you know, oh man, you're really on social media, and you're everywhere, you're all over social media, we see all of your, your posts, and uh, I did opportunity to demonstrate to people that we were working hard, where we were going, what we were doing, put some of our positions out there, uh, and you know, get the the, the campaign. Uh, on a larger platform, so to speak. Uh, now I could tell you it's uh, a lot harder to cut through the noise because everybody's on Twitter. And if you're not on social media, like what, what are you doing if you're running for office or you're trying to uh, get your message out there and you're not utilizing them? But then, even just 11 years ago, uh, it wasn't necessarily a tool that everybody uh, thought that they needed to use then. So back then, yes. Now. Uh, you know, maybe not as much. It's more of, you know, kind of a necessity now uh, than it feels like a necessity now, whereas back then it felt like an opportunity uh, that we had kind of discovered and a way to kind of get into a world that we weren't part of previously. Would you say, speaking of it as an opportunity back then, were you using it mostly to say things that your campaign would have said any other time in a press release, or was it a new form, like were you saying different things than you would have said if you'd been, you know, sending a press release out to the Globe, for instance, or what? Commonwealth? I kind of say what I want regardless of situation. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that I think that what Twitter and other social media outlets afforded me the opportunity for was to get that message out there to a broader audience. Uh, I especially Especially then, I did not have the financial resources in, in our campaign account. I remember running for, for office the first time. When you're running against an incumbent, I mean, not a lot of people are looking to get their name on your donor list at that time, right? Uh, especially if they need something out of you know, the legislative budget, for example. Uh, so it was challenging to be able to find a way to get that message out there to the larger audience, uh, unless you either knocked on every single door and you know, posted online and tagged as many people as possible, uh, and hoped that they saw it. You know, we would, uh, you know, try to target different things with, you know, using the at symbol and the hashtag. Obviously, uh, Mad Polly, <laughs> whatever we're gonna call it. Close, but, almost there. Whatever we're calling it. She's fighting. Um, yeah, but honestly, like, it, we would just try to utilize some of these hashtags and some of the the, the tags to get to our target our target. Um, you know, audience, obviously, constituents at that time and, and, and constituents now is, is who we want to see our, our message. So how have you thought about it as not just a place to get a message out, but also as an informational tool? We've talked about it in terms of its relationship with journalism, but also 
Of course, a lot of us suddenly heard about Twitter when it was connected to the Arab Spring, for instance, uh, or it was really kind of growing during the Obama years. A lot of people saw it during Ferguson, for instance. So thinking about it as a tool to get information as much as to send out information, has that changed? Where does it sort of sit in your media diet, if at all? Yeah, so a lot of folks do contact me through social media. They'll they'll tag us on Twitter. They'll tag us somewhere else, and, or or send uh, an an instant message, or you know, slide into my DMs as we're calling it nowadays. Um, there's the elder millennial in me coming out right now, folks. Um, but you know, it, it's it's a great tool to hear from folks for sure. Um, it's most, mostly folks that contact me on social media I, I already have a relationship with, I've noticed. Uh, it's already somebody that I know, that I've met in person, and you know, they will tag me in something like, you know, I thought this would interest you, or you know, can I set up a meeting with you? And it will help me to, to cultivate relationships. As far as getting information uh, from folks, yeah, I do uh, follow a lot of reporters uh, on social media, on Twitter especially. Uh, we can get pretty busy, uh, so we do follow, you know, a lot of, and I'm not going to start listing them by getting myself in trouble like I did a little bit earlier today, but I do follow a lot of these different places uh, where y'all condense the news stories for the day, make it easier for folks on the go to be able to tap those news outlets. And sure, like sometimes the, the click that you're getting on that news story is because I or someone from my team saw it on Twitter or somewhere else. So still get information in that way. Do I go to it for my information? No. That's not the place that I go to to get my information, to you know, necessarily learn about what's happening. And this is just me personally speaking. It just it, it, it feels like a cluster on there half the time. Like it's just, it's fragmented. This is over here. This is over here. And you, know, you want things to be streamlined. And you want to be able to get your information in an efficient and an effective manner so that you can move on with your day and do what you need to do instead of searching for things all over the place. Uh, but uh, you know, we still do utilize it. I'm still on there. We still post as much as possible. My official office will post a lot of what's happening officially speaking regarding the audits we're releasing or things that are happening in the Office of State Auditor. And then I, on my personal account, a lot of times will retweet those things uh, or reshare those things. But then I also, on my personal accounts, will post about personal things. Jen and I were talking about, you know, if I'm out hiking, Mr. President, which I know you post a lot about as well, uh, I will post about hiking. I'll post about something personal that's going on in my life, a holiday celebration, um, or, you know, something that's campaign related. So, uh, Certainly, we'll, we'll get the information out in that way, in any way that we can. That brings us to a really sort of interesting way that things have perhaps changed, which is just the decline of legislators on Twitter posting more rarely, as, as Chris pointed out. And its role is almost a tool of transparency, we'll call it, uh, where you had some sense of what legislators were doing. Uh, so kind of two smaller questions about that. One, did your office use it in that way? And has, in your new role, have you noticed any change in the way that legislators are using it as a tool of communications and transparency? I haven't really gotten to, to look at what others are doing uh, in terms of other elected officials and how often they're posting or not posting. I could say with our office on the official side, I do request that our team 
post about, you know, all the different audits that are happening, different things that are relevant that are going on. If we are, uh, we spoke at the, the budget hearing the other day, there was a ways and needs hearing at the State House. I wanted to make sure that, you know, that was posted and that we got some of, some of the video from that captioned and up online for folks. You know, for the sake of transparency, for accessibility purposes as well, uh, going back to, you know, what I said before where it was, it used to kind of feel like it was an additional opportunity to post on social media to get outreach to folks that you wanted to be connected with. But now it feels uh, like it's a necessity. You want to make sure that you're utilizing every uh, way possible to allow people access to you, access to your office, uh, and to make sure that you're putting information out there that people might need. Uh, it sort of feels like a, like a an office responsibility. You know, did we post to all of the social media sites on all of the 2,332 accounts that we have? Um, well, it could feel that way, right? Because there's so many different spaces that we need to post in. Now we're just talking about threads. There's Instagram. Then are we did we post an Instagram story and a post, or did we just post an Instagram post? Those are questions. Um, that actually go on, uh, you know, with with our team, and uh, you know, in terms of like these stories, these posts, you know, is it is it this outlet or that outlet? So it has become more of you know this feeling of it's our responsibility to post as much as we can to try to get information out there to better serve people where they're at, whether you are on Twitter or X, whatever we're calling it these days. Twitter. Uh, there you go. And, uh, it, you know, or, or whether you're on something else, whether you're on threads, whether you're on Instagram or Facebook or, or whatnot. I mean, so it's about making sure that we're, we're as accessible as possible and reaching people where they're at. To what extent does the outside framework matter to you? We, we talked a little bit about how Elon Musk, kind of as the person in charge of Twitter now, has been a big contributor to people either dialing back their usage or leaving or saying they're going to leave and then not actually leaving, but posting less and maybe lurking. Uh, is there something about kind of the political ownership of these platforms that does or doesn't factor into the decision to use them? I mean, I've been on Twitter since, like I said, before I even ran for office. And to me, it's a space where folks can reach me where they're at. Uh, so for me, you know, that's an opportunity to connect with residents across the Commonwealth who want to maybe reach out to their state auditor but don't necessarily have uh, my email, which is a really long email, by the way. We're working on it. But uh, so it's an opportunity just to connect with people. And I think that that's the same case, you know, for me at least with all the different spaces. Uh, if, if my constituents are in that space and they want to contact me, you know, I want to know about where that space is and I want to be there so that I can be as accessible as possible. And this is just one of those spaces. All right. Well, State Auditor Diana DeSalvio, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steve, for having me. Thank you, Jen. Great to be here with everyone. Thank you. Okay, so um, if you'll notice, we have now moved from the two-on-one to the one-on-three situation. So everybody here in person, wave bye to Steve. He's going to be back later. Uh, but for those who uh, are here, I'm so happy to have you guys. This is the journalists and comms panel, uh, or as we are referring to it, I guess, as the Mapoliamory section. Um, don't tell the Globe's polyamory department, because they're very interested in it these days. But... 
Sorry about that. So I am thrilled to be chatting with you guys because we've seen several eras of Massachusetts Twitter, Massachusetts social media, the great pivot to video and journalism, and is this just another one of those go by? But we're gonna start out with what was your Mappily meet cute or meet horrible, and did you see any red flags at the time? We are starting with Katie Landon of GBH News. So we're starting with me, and um, please bear with me because I do have Steve's terrible mic, so we're gonna find out now if the problem is with Steve or if, if it's an but. So I first joined Twitter in 2010 when I was in college. Um, yeah, early adopter, it's a choice. It was a life choice. Um, but I want to say my, my first Mappily introduction, probably serious Mappily interactions would be the following year, my senior year in college, when I was uh, doing the Bees State House program. And the director of the program at that time, Fred Bayless, told us we should all be tweeting our stories. and interacting with people that way, which was wild advice at the time, prescient advice, but you know, this was still very much the era of no one will hire you if you're on social media. Um, but lo and behold, there was this whole little space um, with many of the people I now work with and talk to every day who I was following back then. And it was a great way for me to kind of become part of that world before I would eventually end up uh, at the State House. So I went through the local news era of Twitter where we had a big whiteboard uh, at my first newspaper job that counted everyone's Facebook friends and Twitter followers and you know, it was supposed to be always going up. Um, and you know what, I met a lot of really engaged readers that way uh, who would be looking for the kind of police scanner tweets, you know, why is my road closed? What, what's the sirens, what's the helicopter? Um, but people who ended up really building relationships with their local newspaper because all of a sudden it was humans. You know, There were real people behind the stories that you were reading every day. And then I moved to New Jersey for a job for about a year and a half and there was not quite, you know, like Chris said, I, I didn't see the same kind of community there as I do here. It was, I don't think there's a Mappily equivalent in other states quite the same way, not the same uh, environment. So it was great to jump back into it in 2015 and I'm, um, I guess still hanging on with it, still here. <laughs> it really is a therapy session. So Alex Goldstein, um, you've gone through this for a number of you know, local, state, and also national politicians from the comm side as well. So has it been better to be in Mapley than in whatever US poly space is? Well, so, oh, this is gonna go deep. So look, I, <laughs> It was this one of a small group of people that were probably the first five or six people to ever use the hashtag <clears throat> M.A. Polly. And uh, the, um, it was because, so my job, I, I was a grassroots field organizer for Deval Patrick in 2006. Deval won the race. Twitter did not exist yet. Um, went into office. I was given, as happens with you know, young staff joining the administration, a job I was completely unqualified for and uh, didn't know what it did. Um, and the title was Deputy Director of Interactive Media. And I was like, cool, like what is that? Like, do we have a website? Like, what are we doing here? And I uh, had two responsibilities. The first was uh, to start a podcast for the governor, which was a massive failure, and John Keller 
uh, went on uh, at the end of the year after we tried to do a podcast. We did like four episodes and nobody listened to it. Went on to CBS uh, News in Boston and called it the turkey of the year was um, Deval Patrick's failed podcast. We were just before our time. It was like before podcasts became this cool. Um, the second job I had was to stand up Deval Patrick's Twitter account. Deval Patrick was the first major elected official in Massachusetts to have a Twitter account. And uh, my job was to follow him around at events and draft the tweet on his Blackberry and show it to him. He would then meticulously edit it on his Blackberry. This would take like 30 to 45 minutes. He would hand it back to me so he wouldn't like mess it up and then I would click send and then we'd all like hold our breath and be like, okay, now what happens? And um, it was, it, I mean, it was, really exciting. It was the only positive story we ever got in the Boston Herald was a front page story that called Deval Patrick the Twitter governor. And we're like, yeah, we're the Twitter governor. Like, thanks, Boston Herald. And here's like 800 other stories that tell us how horrible we are. Um, but the, I, I will say that like, it was really exciting in the beginning. And I was like, it was, it was really intoxicating. Like new platform, governor's really into it. We're finding all these new ways to communicate with community. We're also, talking to reporters, we're talking to each other, I'm fighting with uh, other staff from offices we disagree with in like a relatively amicable way. And then it's just like literally, it, it, there was like a peak around maybe five or six years ago where there was like still some maybe slight decorum and still some decent information being shared. And then it has been a catastrophic cliff since to the point we're at now where it is, I would argue, Twitter X is completely and utterly useless. So that's where I'm operating from. Whew. All right. <laughs> Feeling better. Mike's yours. <laughs> Somebody go get Alex oh, a drink. <laughs> right? I mean, Kristen, you've seen a lot of different sides of this, too, because you aren't just you know, an online person, but you've also been in charge of figuring out how to reach people where they're at in offline situations. So. Talk to me about both of those sides of things. When Twitter kind of came into your life and your organizational experience, and not just in terms of where you worked, but organizing itself, did it seem like a boom? Did it seem like this was going to be trouble? Oh, it seemed horrible. Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, this awful, awful platform. Because I, as someone who organized in the community, because although a lot of people do know me as um, then counselor and now Mayor Michelle Wu, civic engagement director. Um, before that, and when she met me, I was the civic engagement chair at the for Young Professionals Network at the Urban League of Eastern Massachusetts. And that was not an organization that wanted to be on Twitter. That was an organization that wanted to be on Facebook because that is where people in the community were. They were on Facebook. Facebook was basically acting as this digital community corkboard that you put up things for when you were having an event or engagement or anything like that. And Twitter was just that place where you went to to see if the people that were controlling things had anything fun to say that day. But it wasn't where you were actually doing, going to do community work. It was not where you're going to do organizing work. But after a certain point, when I moved up and moved into her office, when I moved into that chair position and had to talk to more operatives, I found that I had to get on Twitter because Twitter was where operatives talked to each other, where they hashed out policy, um, where new information was introduced in a way that wasn't happening on Facebook and certainly wasn't happening on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook did not even exist yet at that point. Oh, the good old days. <laughs> um, 
the good old pre-algorithm days where really that was the thing that was the best about Twitter when I actually got there. It became a place where it was public, where you could have these conversations with people that you may not actually run into in the neighborhood, that may not be friends or follow the organization that you wanted to talk to on Facebook. But here in this beautiful public commons, um, my background, my graduate degree is in urban planning and community development, and it acted as a digital third space. And we can see right now what's happening with the disappearance of our physical third spaces and you not having that engagement, those casual, low stakes opportunities to talk with people. But that's also what we're seeing on Twitter, where it was this very casual place where you could spend 15 minutes there and catch up on everything, or you could find yourself with an hour in between two appointments and get really in depth into an issue or even like make a new friend. Alex, I know this is true for you, where you go to a party or something and someone's like, oh, I know you. Ah, you're Kay Helmer 617. Oh, I know you. I follow you on Twitter. Yes, that used to be a thing. Because that, I think this taps into something that we sort of talk around, which is, I don't know how many times we've all heard Twitter is not real life. But there's two sides of that. There's Twitter is not real life because not that many people when it comes to the overall population of the states, for instance, are on Twitter. But then the question is, is Twitter Massachusetts political life? Those have to sort of be two different questions if you're thinking about the sort of on the ground parts of our jobs, talking to normal people. And then you have to think about the other side of our jobs, which is exactly as you mentioned, talking to the people who are operating, talking to the people who are legislating, talking to the people who are trying to do political work. So did you think of those as two separate questions initially? Do you think of them as separate questions now? real life versus political real life? I mean, generous of you to assume I have a real life. It's <laughs> Optimism. Yeah, right. <sighs> Should not have started with Katie. <laughs> but yeah, I do think, you know, there and the dynamics have shifted um, and not just with changes at Twitter, but with how COVID has changed the way everyone communicates when you, you know, you've been online even more than ever before. But Twitter, I think, is part of the equation. It's not the whole equation. You know, Kristen mentioned even just the idea of Facebook. Um, there's plenty of elected officials who are way more active on Facebook because that's where their constituents are. There's, you know, I'm always going to get more interesting information from a conversation running into someone in the hallway than I am reading someone's tweets. Um, or you know, even messaging someone on Twitter. It's always gonna be more interesting. It's definitely a piece of the equation, and I think it, it still is. Um, and I, I do think there is that risk that you run into where this is what everyone's saying. Well, is it is, or is it what we're all saying? Um, it's not a, a representative room at all times on the internet. Alex, I, I wanna jump to the COVID actually of it because folks who might not know you from a political background might know that you ran the Faces of COVID accounts. And uh, you cut back or stopped doing that in part because of what had happened to Twitter. What, what was that calculus? Yeah, so Faces of COVID, for folks who aren't familiar with it, was like a three-year, maybe two-and-a-half-year-long effort um, I put together on Twitter to document the lives of people who had died of COVID. It was really simple. Twitter actually lent itself really well to this. A photo and 140 characters about who they were, where they were from something they love to do, something they like to cook, what they meant to their family. And it was the last time I had any hope about the platform at all, because it was very hopeful. The, for all the toxicity that came to define 
uh, Twitter, it was this weird thing where people actually did kind of respect boundaries. And it, I ended up getting 150,000 followers who would just literally mourn each day the new list of people who were being posted. And it was really, like I was blown away that Twitter could actually function like that. So you can imagine the whiplash to the post-Musk uh, ownership where he essentially rendered the site unusable. Um, you know, here's one thing to, that you, like, you can always catch yourself on the uselessness of Twitter right now. It is very common, at least for me, and I consider myself a very, someone who discerns closely what I consume for media. If I go onto Twitter right now, I will get sucked into a piece of content that has been delivered specifically to me to piss me off and elicit a reaction so I engage more with the platform and someone else can monetize it and share part of that revenue with Elon Musk. That is how Twitter works right now. And I have gone down that rabbit hole where I'm about to forward a tweet to somebody and I'm like, holy crap, I'm not even following this person, number one. It showed up in my For You timeline. Number two, they're verified because they bought it and they're not actually even a real person for all I know. And like, I'm sending this, about to send this content to someone as if I actually know anything about the prior two things, which I don't. And I don't know where it came from, and I don't know who the person is, and I'm about to send it to somebody and say, oh my God, can you believe this? And you have to like break the cycle right there. I think the best way I can describe the evolution of the kind of Massachusetts political ecosystem is M.A. Pauly started as a bunch of operatives from different you know, elected officials' office, a bunch of political journalists, and a bunch of people who cared about politics as like a hobby or an advocacy perspective, whatever, sitting around like a cafeteria table in the Ashburton lunchroom, right? That's where it started. And if you wanted, you could pull up a chair maybe and like watch a little bit or maybe like dip in and be like, how's the egg salad or whatever, right? And it was like kind of this cordial thing. And like I used to spar with the Baker folks on Duvall's 2010 reelection campaign. And then we'd like see each other in an event and be like, hey, remember that tweet where I like told you blah, blah, blah. And like there was a little weird collegiality. And then I actually thought the aperture opened. And then it became kind of this like picnic on Boston Common with lots of people who wanted to go to a political picnic. And you could dip in and out and you could have interesting conversations and you could have these like hundreds of tweet back and forth with people about policy. It was like, oh my God, this is democratizing. This is what social media is supposed to do. Then we kind of fast forward to where we are now. And I would think about Twitter right now as a, you're at a bar near the state house and you recognize a few people, but every time you open your mouth, a bunch of people from Texas, Arizona, Moscow, Canada, come pouring out of their basement into the bar and try to punch you in the face. <laughs> that is what, it is a bar fight with people that you don't even recognize. And, um, and sometimes you're brawling and you don't even realize that you don't know anybody you're fighting, right? Um, and that is, I think, like kind of where we're at now, which is why you know, thank God, we were just talking before the segment, like, thank God Mayor Wu gave everybody permission to get the heck off of there. Seriously, it is deleterious to your mental health to be on that site for more than a few minutes. It is almost impossible to get reliable, useful information that you can act on in a meaningful way. It is only an observation post for the chaos of kind of the Trump-Musk era. That's how I view the platform currently. So <laughs> optimistic. Well, so, so I'm gonna... I, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I'm so sorry, because I kind of need to follow this with like a sort of rough question too, which is sort of to the, to the deleterious effects side of it. Um, we are right now in the middle of a news cycle about 
what exactly social media does to people. We often talk about social media as a way to engage not with just with people that we don't know, but often younger people. You think about what it takes to become a young candidate coming up through Massachusetts politics, how you build branding, how you get your name out, all of that. How have you thought, Kristen, about the the way that you can kind of build community, find community on these sites that we now have pretty good reason to know are not really great for us to be on if they're still, as the say auditor noted, still something of, of a presumed necessity. They are, I mean, I wouldn't even say they're presumed necessity. They are, especially if you're in politics or if you're running for office, because there are only so many ways outside of raising a billion dollars to run a mail campaign for the gods for you to get your word out there and for people to know what, what you stand for, honestly. And at the same time, we can't ignore the fact that this is a, this is a capitalistic system at this point. I know when it started out, if it was all fun and good and cute and stuff, but at this point, a lot of these companies have realized just how much money that they can make off of the deterioration of our mental health, and they are going for it. And so you have to understand that social media, it's, it's just a tool. It's just a tool. Am I going to say don't use a hammer because you can bludgeon somebody with it and build a house? No. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to use it responsibly. <laughs> and maybe exactly what it's designed for. And social media, if you are using it properly, if you're thinking about it, if you're doing what Alex says, where you're just taking that extra beat that social media never wants you to take because it wants you to react immediately. But if you are taking that extra beat to really think about the content that you're not just coming across, that content is absolutely being pushed at you and just taking a second to think if you want to accept that or if you want to put it down or if you wanna share it with somebody else. And I think that what we really need to do is just slow down because technology is moving faster than we are. And it is something that we built. We should be controlling the speed of it and our engagement with it. I'm gonna to have to ask basically just one quick final question to all of you, which is, are we leaving it? And if so, where do we go? <laughs> That's, I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? Everyone threatens it every yeah. single day. They're saying we're leaving Twitter and then they're it's a great uh, time tweeting to about their my new platform. <laughs> <laughs> GBH News? <laughs> no, just me, individual. Um, no, look, I don't have a big picture decision. I'm there for now in part because I want, if so many people still reflexively open up their phone when they get up in the morning and go to the Twitter app and scroll through it. And at least I can put some stuff there that I know is true, that I know reflects what maybe you're looking for and don't know another way to find about your state government. And when you do figure out another way to find it, let me know and I'll come hang out there too. So I, I, I am continuing to be an observer, but I'm not really interacting much. Um, here's my optimistic note about where we can go from here, because that last one I did was pretty rough. Um, <laughs> You're the, really uh, holding on to yeah, some stuff. I'm like really holding on to the chair. Um, the, uh, look, so what, here's a great lesson I learned when I was a grassroots field organizer for Duval in 06. Remember, this was like a pretty groundbreaking grassroots campaign. And one of the things that happened around the time of that campaign that changed the whole fabric of the campaign from a technology perspective that we didn't even realize was that right around that time, if you didn't have a cell phone, you weren't like cool, right? Like that was everyone, that was like the right at the sunset of the landline, 
right? And the, everyone started to have, we had flip phones, and then it became smartphones, et cetera. So what was the kind of the crazy things about that? Well, in 26, 2006, when I was running phone banks, I could not call people's cell phones. I didn't know how to get their numbers, and so we called landlines, and everyone did have caller ID, so people didn't like to answer the phone that much. So guess what? We had to go to their doors, right? It forced us to actually have real conversations because we could tell that what we were doing was empty calories, trying to find people and keep getting their answering machines and leaving messages being like, don't forget to vote on November whatever, please. Click, like, call us back. Um, you know, and, and I think that there's an opportunity like that now in the social media space, which is that I think that there is this weariness and fatigue that we're all talking about is a fairly universal experience except for the people who are profiteering from the misery. And I think that as a result of that, there is an opportunity for some regeneration here and also a like could return to the substance and complexity and nuance of really thoughtful engagement around politics. So one example is that as much as Facebook, Twitter, and all the kind of Google, all these big major tech companies have completely devastated the local news landscape, you are starting to see new little saplings come out of the ground, right? You're seeing Brookline's got its own local news outlet. Belmont's got its own local news outlet. The, uh, I saw that you, know, you got the Plymouth Independent now. It's like, you know, hopefully if, and this is a great direction for philanthropy to go, but people also need to pay for local news. But like, there is a huge opportunity to kind of, the, the counter is really, really strong local news that creates a public square where people can engage through that platform. And now the tech is there that these outlets can convene the conversation, right? Um, and they're trusted, and they're verified, and there's some facilitation, and there's some guardrails. Um, that to me is very promising. Um, I will say that I, my daughter, uh, first daughter, first child was born uh, June 14th, and I uh, took four months, my entire leave that I took from my company, um, I stayed off of Twitter. And it was the most mentally clear I have felt since it was invented in 2006. And it was such a gift to have that excuse. Um, and I will never go back to the consumption that I used to have. See, that was optimistic, right? You know, we're both cons professionals, so I'm gonna let you interpret how you yeah, feel okay. like you said. It's to you. You had the most optimistic answer before. How do you use the tool? Do you use the tool? Oh, I'm going to stay uh, mappily Mary Poppins over here. <laughs> <laughs> so last night, um, I understand that Taylor Swift's boyfriend caught some balls or something before and after the Usher concert. Yes. But I only know that. You can't that. say that to a Californian. This is not good for me right now. <laughs> I only know that because I went to Twitter. Because I did not want to watch this thing. I only wanted fun reactions to it. I will say that I was watching some of the game. So when Kennedy's uh, commercial came on, by halfway through it, I had my phone out. Because boy, I to be some hilarious reactions to this train wreck were. There were also phenomenal reactions from the Usher concert from Black Twitter. So because these communities and these talkbacks and things still exist on this site, because a huge amount of activists and people that I care about have left and gone on to other forms of communication, but a couple of them are staying and they are trying and they are fighting back 
and I know that they are fighting for a time when perhaps Twitter can go back to being what it was for all of us. So as long as they're going to stay there and fight, I'm going to stay there and read. And I'm going, to, I'm going to be hopeful. Now, this isn't to say that I'm not also going to jump on Blue Sky and Threads and everything else in the world. And now I understand that she's on, on Twitch, so I'm there. <laughs> but but um, I'm not just going to simply completely abandon this thing that meant so much to so many of us, because I just can't quite close the door on Twitter just yet. OK. Well, that is sadly all the time I have to talk with you lovely folks all on my own. Um, so thank you again, Katie Lannon, Alex Goldstein, Kristen Halbert. Uh, thank you all for being here. As we are told that a snowstorm barrels in. Uh, we'll leave it there so you can all get home before the bands start and your cars are buried in snow. Uh, so until then, thanks to the good folks at the Shaw Family Foundation for letting us use their space. Thanks to our hidden producer, John Gee, back there for keeping us sounding like people as best he can and on schedule as best he can, uh, as always. And here's the pitch segment of it. Uh, sign up for Commonwealth Beacon's daily download and flag down the Massing polling group if you need polls and focus groups done. We are so glad you are all able to make it out here. I'm Jennifer Smith. I'm signing off for Steve Cazella over there. That is all the time we have for today. Thanks for being here and thanks for listening. <laughs>